So the teacher is really more of a facilitator and really a guide, but, but really following more of the children's process, curiosity, following their, their lead and seeing what, really seeing them for what their experience is. Sometimes a child would just really miss their mom and, you know, when they're crying at the gate because their mom or dad is leaving them. At Gazebo, it's, it wasn't, no, don't cry, and I'm going to distract you and whisk you away. There was an uh, allowance for those feelings. And, yeah, I see that you're really sad and it's really hard when you miss mama. And, you know, where do you feel that in your body? And, you know, the teacher really supporting them, experiencing the full range of emotions. And so there begins to be a emotional language language, emotional literacy that forms. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today my guest is Jasmine Starr-Haran, author of The Gazebo Learning Project, a legacy of experiential and experimental early childhood education at Esalen. Gazebo is a somewhat legendary institution encapsulated within the Esalen Institute, and Jasmine was born at Esalen. She's the daughter of foundational massage teacher Peggy Haran, and she attended the gazebo school as a child, where she grew up in an environment where the opportunity for free play and free choice was constant. Child-centered learning was encouraged through an exploratory and inquiry-based environment. Uh, For some context, the gazebo park, located on the north side of the Esalen Institute, is an outdoor classroom with very few toys or play structures with prescribed uses, though the park overflows with abundant gardens, uh, often animals, plants, trees, a pony shed, a greenhouse, Pottyville, which is exactly what it sounds like, uh, snacks, cubbies, first aid material, and more. During our conversation, Jasmine describes her journey in documenting the cultural legacy of a unique school that has touched so many lives. Yeah, this, so this conversation that we're having is in celebration of your completion of your book, The Gazebo Learning Project, A Legacy of Experiential and Experimental Early Childhood Education at Esalen. Congratulations, Jasmine. Thank you. It's good to have arrived here. Talk to me about the process of writing this book. How long did it take you, and what was it like to to work on it? Well, um, it's been um, about a six-year process, but I've also been chipping away ever so slowly it's been a process of self-discipline and, you know, a deep dive into learning, um, understanding, and curiosity about this pro- about this program, but also the different experiences in relation to the programs. I started as just kind of an open inquiry, and I didn't know I was going to write a book into, I started what I called the Gazebo Writing Project, and I just started collecting stories and input, and I thought I'd write an article and see where that went, and I was working at the Gazebo at the time, let's see, 2012, and I wanted to understand the philosophy better and get some records down from the elders and um, I just I I stepped into teaching at um, Gazebo at a time where Joanna Klassen had left as the director and me and Miriam Sauer were holding the leadership she was our interim director and we were sort of figuring it out until we got a new director. And so there was several months there where we were holding this entity, which um, without, which we didn't totally 
have a leadership for, and, and there was some, a lot of questions came up about where to go and how to hold space there. I think that was part of the impulse is like realizing, wow, oral tradition isn't always there in the way that, you know, we want to be informed by these these leaders. And so um, I, I knew there was a lot of people in the community that held this valuable knowledge about um, the philosophy. And so I decided to start to collect some of those stories um, to inform us. And also, I was worried about the legacy being diluted or lost in that there was just a lot of change happening. And the school was always sort of in flux. And there was definitely a fear about it closing um, off and on over many years. And, and I also had come back to Big Sur and to teaching at Gazebo after getting a master's in teaching and really an openness to the fact that my experience in early childhood and my upbringing was really unique, and I didn't really get that until I came back um, with this more intellectual understanding um, I knew it on an experiential level, but when I went back and um, and saw the school as a teacher and, and from this space of, of coming, you know, with the education background and training, I really got it. I was like, this is so different than anything else out there in the world. So mm-hmm. I really wanted to capture that essence somehow and, and share it in a bigger way because alternative education doesn't have that many pedagogies that are well documented and there's Waldorf there's Montessori Reggio Emilia and and there's a few that have you know globalized a little but I I felt like this had its place at the table so um I could probably go on and on but that's kind of where the impulse started for the project can you talk to me about the origin story of gazebo and your involvement with it Well, I wasn't born yet when Gazebo started, but my sister was one of the original cohorts. My sister is Lucia Herrera, a Five Rhythms teacher and workshop leader. And my mom is Peggy Haran, excellent massage teacher and, uh, you know, legacy holder in the excellent massage um, tradition. And, um, you know, we were living there on site when um, I was born at Esalen, and um, my sister was born there. And there was, was a very experimental time in the history of Esalen, um, I think even more in the early days when my brother was young, but also into the into the 70s, there was just a lot of experimentation and breaking out of the cultural norms. And you know, our parents were really diving into what it meant to be free and what it meant to live off the grid and counterculture and kind of breaking the rules, the social rules and. Um, and I think there was so much breaking open of boundaries that our generation was a little bit astray, like we we're sort of floating around there. You know, children need boundaries, and we were kind of trying to find ours. And um, I think that eventually it came to the attention of the management that um, the children needed a place in all of this. I think that the classic story is that at one of the manager's meetings, it came up and, and you know, people asked, what do we do with the children? And um, Janet Letterman, who's the founder of Gazebo, was very candid and, and very, you know, she was joking, but she stood up and said, let's throw them over the cliff. 
you know, it got a, a pretty good rise out of everyone. But it was sort of that real shine the light on the fact that um, they weren't going anywhere, and we really needed to um, cultivate a space and an experience for them. And that's what she did, and and she um, formed the gazebo and really created a space for the children to have their own experience and to also feel that growth potential, that the human potential movement was really focused towards adults. But I think Janet really shifted that and really turned it on its head in a way and and made it a potent ground for that potential to be established early on. You mentioned earlier Waldorf and Montessori. What made the Gazebo School different than Waldorf or Montessori or other alternative uh, preschools? The Gazebo was really stepping out of the sort of social and cultural script that um, of how we're supposed to be with children. You know, there were many things that people saw that they felt disoriented by or felt that was just really out of the norm and and really uncomfortable for some people. People were not used to this, and and Janet really saw working with children in a very different way. She really uh, approached the whole early childhood phase with a different openness towards um, towards children. And I'll just get a little bit specific about the, how the philosophy evolved in, into really what I formed as these essential qualities. I, I, you know, in order to write about it, I had to get a little bit clear on what those were. And I think that a couple of the main things were just the way that the child was seen, the view of the child being that the child was capable of a lot more than what people really gave an opportunity for um, in, in the child's experience, capable of responsibility, capable of calculated risk, capable of conflict resolution, self-agency, and just from the littlest things like turning on the sink and washing you know, hands to the bigger things like you know, getting in touch with your emotions and um, learning to express them. Um, I think that Janet really saw that kids were really able to do a lot more than what they were given the opportunity to do. And, and then also that bleeds over into the, the role of the teacher and how the teacher acts in response to that view of the child. So the teacher is really more of a facilitator and really a guide, but but really following more of the children's process, curiosity, following their their lead and seeing what really seeing them for what their experience is and being able to respond and be present, but not in an imposition of the teachers here to impose our knowledge of the world, but really trusting the child's process in staying with that and just letting that be the the impulse rather than the other way around. And I think that really flipped education on its head in a way. Yeah. So it sounds to me like Gazebo was framed within the context of Esalen, but it really kind of became its own organism. And now Gestalt obviously was a big part of the Esalen community, particularly in, in the 1970s. My question for you is, did it influence the kind of learning and teaching that was going on at Gazebo? 
Yes, I think Gestalt-informed gazebo and gazebo-informed Gestalt because there was a mutual learning. And back to that role of the teacher, um, it wasn't just about the teacher imposing knowledge, but the teachers were also learning a lot from the students by watching these interactions, by watching the child's behavior. And Gestalt was very alive for many of the parents, um, for much of the community. So you know, Janet Letterman was a, a student of Fritz Perls. She had written Anger in the Rocking Chair, which was a book about her, the way she practiced gestalt with inner city kids in um, the Watts neighborhood in L.A. So she came to, you know, gazebo with her own experiences of gestalt and then the community itself informing the practices. So a lot of the early gazebo teachers went on to become prominent gestalt teachers also and and parents. So Christine Price and, and Dick Price, you know, their their daughter Jennifer Price was one of the first students and Dorothy Charles was a teacher there as well as Perry Holloman and trying to think who other, what other teachers came through that ended up, um, you know, becoming prominent workshop leaders later, but they all in their, in their stories with me share about how Gazebo informed their, their work later on. Stephen Harper also um, was a parent there and a teacher, and they really felt that this was a germination ground for the work that developed in them later and, and their work with children and, wa- and watching all these um, interactions and um, how the children were learning and processing and playing. And so, yeah, very much um, a two-way you know, reflection and, um, and learning and experience based on the community and, and Gestalt was a big part of that. What does it look like for a preschool or, or early childhood learning zone to be influenced by Gestalt? What, what are the kind of scenes that, that you might see? Really, Gestalt is a practice. That's kind of was how I focused on with the book. So it being, there's a fluidity in it being a practice that you implement in different ways depending on the situation very responsive to the moment and that really is you know where we begin with gestalt is you know in in the present moment and what's arising and and what are we noticing and getting curious about that and so with gestalt practice i think that there's a way in which there's a saying that says the the initiator is the expert on their on their process on their experience i'm not sure if i'm quoting that quite right but if the initiator is the student whether they're one or two or five um, there's a trust in that their process is is important and so um, in any given situation it might look different but I'll try to give you an example of how a gestalt process might play out in the park. There are several of these in the book, different anecdotes and examples, but just let's say there's a group of kids in the sandbox and one kid throws sand in the other kid's eyes and the kid with sand in their eyes begins to cry. And the teacher notices this happening, moves in, comes down closer to the children's level. And 
They might say to the student who is hurt, I see that you're crying. And they might say to the student that threw the sand, do you see that they're crying? What are you noticing about their face right now? You know, provided they don't need first aid, this can be the initiation of a process in which they begin to notice each other. And the teacher begins a facilitation in which hopefully there's a completion. And um, it might take a while, but it's not you need to apologize now or we don't do that here. It's much more of a developing an empathy and a developing um, an understanding. And so some of these processes, the, the full experience of conflict was allowed to play out um, in a way that was really edgy for a lot of, of people that saw the gazebo philosophy for the first time. Um, even in the early days, you know, physical conflict was allowed to play out. And it, so that's where the experiential learning comes in of what does it mean to feel my body and feel in relationship to another body as opposed to we don't hit, we don't throw sand, this is the rules and this is the adult saying. What does it mean to experience it? And what does it mean when my friend is crying and how does that affect me? So there's this whole other realm of possibility in which um, the child feels this effect and, and, and relationship. So a lot of the gestalt that was implemented was around that, around conflict resolution. But there's also just beginning with the self, how to tune into your own body, how to tune into your own emotions. Sometimes a child would just really miss their mom, and, you know, when they're crying at the gate because their mom or dad is leaving them, um, they're, at Gazebo, it's, it wasn't, no, don't cry, and I'm going to distract you and whisk you away. There was an uh, allowance for those feelings, and, yeah, I see that you're really sad, and it's really hard when you miss mama, and, you know, where do you feel that in your body, and, you know, the teacher really supporting them experiencing the full range of emotions. And so there begins to be a um, emotional language, um, a, a emotional literacy that forms. And then also the, the language of gestalt comes in, the, you know, speaking in I statements, naming, reflecting, really encouraging that communication from the heart and, and from the present moment. So, you know, it's it's a little bit of the interpersonal and the intrapersonal in terms of how gestalt shows up with children and how it shows up with adults also in the self-inquiry because within that, say, the sandbox scene I just described, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff stirring in the adult, too. There may be the immediate response of the cultural programming and social programming that the, child, you know, the parent or the teacher wants to come in and say, this is how we're supposed to do things. You know, the script, again, that's you know, nor- normally shows up. And then you know, for the teacher to really notice and um, not always act right away. Maybe they don't step in right away. Maybe they watch the interaction play out and begin to notice what it's stirring in them and what, and becoming curious about if this that which is stirring in me is a automatic response to something that I've experienced or if it's an appropriate response to the situation. So those aren't things that you always get to unpack in the moment, but the teachers usually had a group process in which a gestalt facilitator came in and they could really look 
deeper at what is going on for them and how these interactions with the children are triggering them and where they need to look and at what's you know what's going on for them and how they can tease out what's you know projecting from the past and what's really appropriate for the the moment and which which kids are triggering them and so there's a lot that goes on um and, and, a, and a big skill set that's being formed both for the children and the adults um, about learning boundaries, about allowing, about, um, a, I think a big piece too is the somatics and the element of really looking and noticing the body language of the children and feeling our own bodies and where our responses are in our bodies and um, encouraging the children to really investigate what's happening for them in their bodies. And there's so much attention to um, not just the language and not just the scene that's playing out on a, on a verbal level, but how the child is holding themselves and so there's a lot that comes in, and I think that also ties into our, how we experience in a full somatic way what whatever is going on for for us in the moment. Mm. Yeah, there's a, I like how you describe that there's sort of a, a growth curve for the adults in this process as well. There's a cool quote from your mom uh, in your book. She says, we had our differences too over the crying baby thing because it was very hard for me to leave Lucia at gazebo and hear her cry and know that the teachers weren't going to pick her up. That didn't work for me at all. I didn't understand it, and I had a lot of trouble with it. Yeah, I think that was a, a problem for a lot of people, not just my mom, and um, and it, it continually came up, so that was a big um, philosophical um, point that was arguable for for many people and it kind of goes against our nurturing instinct and when we see a child that falls down there are some choices we can make about you know rushing in and um, and you know rescuing them from their experience Um, you'll notice when a child falls down usually they're going to look up and see who's noticing and then base their response on the value that another person's noticing is is giving them. So, you know, there's that pause of, um, I like what Eduardo said about, it's not that we're, we don't respond, but we don't rush to respond. So it's that pause of, of how, you know, and, that, and then we don't take the experience from the child. If the child is sad about their mom leaving, like Lucia was, then that sadness has its own place and that um, when we distract and save and rescue, then we, in a sense, are, um, are taking something away from their experience. So it's a really hard thing to sort of wrap our heads around, but um, there, there were some really edgy elements for people not picking up children, not, um, you know, interfering with the with the conflict in the ways that are normally, you know, done. And these are some of the elements that Janet just let kids explore. And, um, yeah, it didn't work for everyone, but that's part of what made Gazebo unique. 
And I'm not saying it's right or wrong because there is something very instinctual about wanting to comfort a child. Um, And and gazebo philosophy doesn't say don't comfort. It's how we comfort. It's like, you know, coming down to the child's level is really important. And, And part of the reason why not picking up the child is there's a subliminal message that it's taking away something from them. And, and so keeping them connected to the earth and allowing them the experience of learning to crawl, learning to connect with their bodies, sensing the earth, sensing the grass, feeling, touching, smelling, all of those things, those are huge parts of the learning. Just like turning on the sink, you know, it's, it's easy. And when I first started at Gazebo, it was really easy for me to see that as something that we just hurry through to get to the art project. But then I began to realize that these are really valuable moments and the child is learning so much by learning to turn the knob and feeling the water on their hands and figuring out where the towel is and drying and that... There's so much sensory input that's going into these experiences that we don't realize how much we take away when we we eliminate those for the child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's something that you bring up in your book, this question of who are children without their parents. And it seems like the gazebo school was was, uh, a, a place in which to explore that question. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was, and I think um, that's a big part of early childhood education in general is to um, have those early experiences without your parents, and it's a big part of the emotional learning is that feeling of separateness. There's a really beautiful story that our uh, stories, Arthur Munyer um, wrote kind of these gestalt processes and verbatim um, how things happen between the, the child and himself. And he, he walks a child through one of these sort of mourning your, your parent moments um, and missing your parent. And um, it's just really beautiful to see how a child can move through that um, and be acknowledged for their grief or sadness and move through it and then come to the other side of it. And as we know, children are quite resilient. um, And when they're ready to let go, it happens pretty quick, much quicker than with adults. And so, um, yeah, there's definitely that is part of the learning. What about this this tenet of gazebo? You have an interesting section in your book where you list some of the tenets. And there's a quote, what the parents resist, the children persist. What does that mean? Janet Letterman said that, and I wish that I could speak to it a little bit better because it's a really tough one as a parent to really lean into because it's, <laughs> it's about power, I think, a lot and the struggle that occurs, and um, I certainly experience it with my daughter. Um, the more that I push back on something, the more it becomes a point of tension, so... It's really about feeling into, you know, there's the tension and am I going to turn towards it and come head on with my child? That will eventually exacerbate the tension that's already there. And so I guess it's really about the energy of resistance and persistence versus a more expansive way to approach parenting in which 
you're able to align with the child's energy in a different way. Mm. I'm a fan of Susan Stiffelman, who is a parenting coach, and she talks about coming alongside your children rather than at them. So in a way, I think this is kind of that approach of, um, yeah, not not necessarily always going head on, which is a hard thing for me and my relationship with my, my daughter. So, yeah, I, I, I wish I could speak to it from more experience, but I think that's what she had in her mind. Right. That's great. Um, I'm going to ask you some more of your tenants, if you can explain some. Okay, they were, they were actually just um, sure. ev- evolved tenants. I think most of them came from Janet Letterman, and they were posted inside the pony shed for years, and I think different teachers evolved them as they went, so um, hard to source. But, yes, feel free. I can speak to them as best I can. Experience precedes knowledge. What does that mean? That means that when you have the... Uh, experience and you're able to process something on that visceral level, on that somatic level, that you can then attribute meaning to it and, and, you know, based on the contest, excuse me, context of your experience so that it's much more meaningful to have an experience and then put contextual knowledge to it as opposed to the other way around where you're presented a piece of knowledge and then you're supposed to have an experience based on that piece of knowledge. So Mm. it's really what I was saying earlier about Janet flipping the script on teaching and education in that it's not about the teacher presenting a piece of information or saying, okay, here's the learning objective that the child needs to know this we're going to do this lesson, present this information, then the child gets some hands-on experience based on that information. So it's exactly the opposite of that here's an experience, fully embrace it, experience it, and let that entire process, whether it takes one minute or two weeks, unfold, and then begin to talk about it. And so the teacher is really paying attention in the gazebo philosophy to the child's curiosity and really letting the child deeply dive into whatever that curiosity is. And then the teacher as they see these interests emerge, can begin to offer some more conceptual resources based on that interest. But down the line, it's not not here, oh, you want like butterflies? Let's go look at the butterfly book right away. It's, wow, it's questions, it's curiosity. How does that butterfly move? I wonder where it came from. I wonder where it lives. And what are you noticing about it? And, um, you know, sometimes these these inquiries would become these great projects that lasted you know a really long time like one child begins to notice the the stump with the termites in it and I remember one kid um, going at this stump uh, like an old log and and the termites were in it and just um, kind of taking a tool to it and it lasted weeks and more kids got involved and they sort of chiseled out this whole stump and began to learn about termites but there was a very experiential learning happening within them taking their hands and using tools and and sort of diving into this thing and then you know later on they might learn something about termites and how they operate or maybe they lose interest and go on to something else but there wasn't a forced um learning it was it's you know it's, it's very much about the experience 
This isn't one of the tenets, but it's part of the vocabulary. It's part of the glossary of your book. What is the growing edge? Um, so the growing edge is a term that um, I heard growing up around Esalen as um, where, where we are in our learning, how we are growing, what we're moving towards, where we're feeling discomfort, where we are stepping into but not quite there. It's that state between, you know, discomfort and growing. And um, it's it really, for educators, much like the zone of proximal development that Lev Vygotsky talks about in his educational theory of there's this place in which, you know, maybe your peers are right up here and maybe you're right here and maybe you're, you know, you were back here, but you're sort of in this little limbo of learning of um, right there on the edge. It's that space of growth and discomfort and moving towards, but not quite there and evolution of your own learning and development. Now, I think you described it very well, uh, and in, in fact, it kind of brings it back to what you were uh, speaking about earlier with this instinct that adults sometimes have, uh, both parents and within the educational context of helping the child out. And it, it, it sounds to me that if we as adults indulge that instinct to do stuff for the children, we're taking them away from that growing edge. You have a, an interesting uh, quote in your book from Patrick Deuce, uh, who who said, don't help them do what they can't do. Like climbing, if a child wants to climb and they're not able to do it, don't help them. You make them dependent on the adult. The thing is to encourage them to learn how to learn, which is the same as Feldenkrais, how to support them rather than just have a preconceived script. Yeah, um, I think Patrick has some really interesting um, perceptions about the way that he saw learning and, and how that learning carried over into his work as, as with spinal awareness and based on the Feldenkrais method and that a lot of the children through experience were um, doing things that he had to learn from Feldenkrais later on uh, all these things that were these complicated you know sets of movements and things and the, and the child if given the the space really instinctually knows um, so much and is able to do so much in tr- if they are trusted in their own inner knowing. And so, yeah, there's a lot in the book about what it means to not help but rather support a process but really to to let the child um, experience it from climbing a tree to the conflict resolution to naming their emotions. So whether it's a, a sort of physical ability or a more emotional literacy concept, there's there's definitely a, an importance in taking risk. And I talk about that in the book about calculated risk and how it's just really easy in our culture to want to remove the risks. And you see that on playgrounds today. There's just everything is prescribed and um, structured and there's, you know, a lot of places in which, um, you know, a child can do things but not in the way that 
they might if they were given the opportunity for calculated risk, and that could be emotional risk or physical risk, but really allowing for that, it takes a lot of discipline on the grown-up's part to step back and say, I'm going to, I know there's a risk here, and I'm going to still let it play out. I have a couple more okay. for you to go through if you, if you so choose. Yeah. How about explaining or unpacking the term witness as it uh, uh, kind of applies to uh, the Gazebo Learning Project? Yeah, I guess that's a really good question, and it's giving me pause to consider it myself. I mean, I think it's really being an observer and seeing the importance of that, the value of observing, whether you're observing your own process, your own emotions, your own presence, whether you're witnessing another person or a group dynamic. Those are all really valuable things. Like we learn so much just from watching and from witnessing. And so that premise really began, I think, with Fritz Perls, who did these group uh, processes, and that was unusual, I think, in the therapeutic model, and, and that when someone is in a group process, Pearl saw the value of what people who are witnesses also gain by seeing a shift in, and seeing the energy shift and seeing a process come to completion. And it's the same with children. If they're in a process um, and they're watching another child go through an experience, there or, or a teacher's watching, there's a intrinsic benefit to to seeing that, to, to witnessing that, and, and whether it's maybe a, an incident where a child needs first aid. That's uh, a good example because I think Penny really, you know, Penny Varigay, who did the first aid program at, at Gazebo, really um, included everyone in the process of first aid. And so maybe some people had a role as a you know first aider maybe the kid fell down and scraped his knee and you know a first aider could help with the band-aid there was a comforter who might shade the eyes of the child who was fell down or stroked their forehead and and then there's all the kids who gather around i mean you see that naturally when someone gets hurt kids gather around and they care and they're interested they're developing their empathy skills by watching this incident and they're learning something by seeing how uh, this this is all, you know, playing out. Yeah, I think that's that's the best way that I can describe it. Okay, one more. How about trigger? What is a trigger in the context of gazebo? I think that it for me it feels like it applies more. To teachers and um, to students, because as a grown-ups, we have a lot more time to develop all these the emotional baggage that makes us project things and makes us get triggered. So, you know, early experiences are being developed by the children, but as we go through life we are reminded of those early experiences as adults and some of those early experiences um, might build up and build up and then as an adult we get triggered by 
an experience in the present that might be a representation of an early experience or a set of experiences that led to a pattern for us emotionally. And so these are really important things to pay attention to as a teacher or as a grown-up, what's triggering us? So in, in the you know, gestalt context of being triggered, it's, it's like what's, where, what's hitting a nerve for us? Where's the electricity? And, um, and maybe unpacking that a little bit, using that as the entry point. So the trigger is happening in the present, but it sort of leads us down this little uh, vortex of personal experience and how that is showing up in the present. Now I want to ask you, just for personal remembrances, I'm curious, what was your experience with gazebo like as a child? What are some of the highlights for you? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is the Magic Castle. And the Magic Castle was basically a ruin of an old house. It was kind of the foundation of an old house, and there was a lot of passion vines and morning glory covering it. And it wasn't really much of anything looking at it as an adult, but as a child it was this fascinating realm of play and imagination. And that's one of the things about the gazebo environment, that it doesn't have a whole bunch of elaborate, prescribed things that you can do with with a toy or with an object or with a play structure, it leaves so much room for imagination. And so for me, the Magic Castle was just the epitome of that. It was just this place where you could go and just become anything you wanted and make it anything you wanted and, um, you know, climb these rock walls. And there was, you know, there was a little danger in a way there that there's, you know, sharp rocks and, you know, places where you could get scraped and things, but it was just so magical to me that um, I just still feel that in my heart, that essence of just real creativity coming out of something that leaves that open-ended kind of play. I definitely remember some some places that were edgy and uncomfortable. Um, I remember crying and not being helped and feeling that it was unfair that I was, you know, stuck, you know, up a tree or or something like that. And there's this notion of fair, you know, that kids have it. That's not fair. And, and, and it isn't. Life isn't really fair. But in a way, looking back, I think it's more fair, you know, in, in looking at a child as, as somewhat of an equal being able to navigate their way out of situations that they got themselves into. So, um, yeah, I'm trying to think what other memories. A lot of connection, um, you know, with my my teachers, and a lot of those teachers became kind of like godparents who I um, still am very close with and have these wonderful connections with. Sidel Foreman, it was one of my gazebo teachers, is, is my godmom, and she provided a lot of the images, um, photographs for the book, and um, Glenn Sheeta and Martine Bittman, and a lot of these people are, are really, you know, became more like aunties and uncles throughout my life, and just a really strong connection, and even, you know, friends from gazebo, those are really lasting friendships and really deep bonds. Do you feel that the nature-based curriculum influenced you? Absolutely. I'm glad you asked. Um, there is 
so much um, about the nature and outdoor education that is really vital to this particular pedagogy because I think without that, it's really hard to implement some of these ideas because of the openness of space and time that was given to children. They could really fully experience and go through these processes that they were interested in or things that were happening for them. So for me, it's hard to separate growing up in Big Sur and growing up at Esalen and Gazebo because I was very influenced by nature. But it is is such a vital part of, of learning in so many ways from the sensory experience and the senses that were developing as I was you know, as my my brain was developing, as my body was developing, how I learned to just come into contact with nature. And just like the same contact that I was coming into with those adults and friends, there's another aspect of knowing myself through knowing nature. I call it the terrapersonal. So really establishing a relationship with the earth, whether it's listening to the cry of a crow whether it's feeling a worm wriggling in my hand, whether it's eating a carrot out of the garden, just building a bond with nature. How would you be different, do you think, if you had not been a gazebo kid? I think that's really hard to say. Um, Those are some questions that came up throughout the project and... um, you know, Ken Dykewald asked me when he read the manuscript, he's been a big supporter of the project, and, and he said, what, how did you guys turn out? Like, what's the, you know, what's the result? And I think because there's no real longitudinal studies on gazebo kids and how they are different, it's really hard to put my finger on that and, and, and hard to know whether what's coming up for me now is a result of gazebo or Esalen or my experience in Big Sur. Um, but I can say that I feel really blessed to have had um, a really unique and open experience as a child and a lot of freedom. I think that's one of the things that stands out for me most is that feeling of freedom. And I don't think every child gets to feel that free and feel like they can just play in an outdoor space with, with so much freedom and, and, and responsibility and, and just openness to really be a child. You know, I think that's what, what really um, makes me want to promote the philosophy for educators is just there's something so liberating for children to be able to really be children in a space that allows that. Jasmine, I think people listening to this podcast just might be interested. What What is the legacy of Gazebo, uh, both at Esalen and out in the world? Well, I think the legacy is an ever-evolving philosophy that was born from the Gazebo Learning Project and Janet Letterman's vision for Gazebo at Esalen Institute, but also those seeds that it planted in so many people's lives, which was part of why I wanted to gather so many different experiences because I heard from so many people how influential this was in their lives, how moved they were by the experience of Gazebo. And many people took those seeds and planted them out in the world from, you know, gazebo influence um, 
schools that were created and from how maybe they carried the gazebo experiences into their life's work. I believe that the gazebo legacy is really a pedagogy that is responsive to whatever environment you in, you are in and I and I wanted to write this book so that people could um, glean what was applicable in their own communities and apply it in their own learning communities because I think there's a lot of value in this particular model and I think that people can really use this book as um, a blueprint. It's not a how-to book, but it is. it does give a set of principles that educators and parents can use as they approach children, and especially if you want to approach children in a different way than you're used to, whether you're you know, homeschooling or whether you're in a traditional program or um, have a school yourself. I think there's a lot here that can be offered, and so uh, my hope is that this book really presents that pedagogy in a way that people can find useful in their own communities. Jasmine, what about play and its importance? Yeah, I, I believe that play is a very integral part of early childhood education, and in this philosophy, really... Um, brings to life that experiential learning. Gazebo had a very interesting approach in that it was mixed age groups and they were learning from each other and there's just so much about play that engages um, the mind-body and engages social-emotional development. And it's just really how kids process the world that they're living in. And so this way in which Gazebo allowed uninterrupted play, free play, imaginative play, there was so much space for learning through that. And because there wasn't a strict timetable, the play could be really, really deep in one area or they can move on if they weren't interested anymore. And so there was a real freedom and a personal power to being able to play in a way that was self-directed. And I think that that really um, reflects on the kind of empowerment children get from having those kinds of personal choices around their interests and and being able to be student-led in that way. Um, There's a real piece about, um, you know, empowerment given, given the options and choice to really play how they want, when they want, in a very full way. Jasmine Starr-Haran, thank you so much for talking with us today. Before we get off, please tell us, how can we find your book? Okay, the book is available at www.silverpeakpress.com. And you can also find me at jasmine at silverpeakpress.com. I'm happy to answer any questions or connect with you about um, the project. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Terry Gilby, Greg Archer, Shannon Hudson, Kelly McKay, and Michelle Broderick. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions. <laughs>